0: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baer's interview with the Academy Award nominated cinematographer for El Conde, Edward Lockman.
2: Yo no quiero vivir 250 años más. ¿Por qué?
1: Porque me trataron de ladrón. A un soldado se le puede decir que es un asesino, pero no que es un ladrón. Pero robaste. Uno. So, Pablo lorraine calls you up and asks you to be part of his next film, saying that it's going to be about Augusto Pinochet as a 200-plus-year-old vampire who wants to die. What was your reaction?
2: So, so look, I, I was drawn to this work of Pablo Lorraine. I had met him over 14 years ago um, when he had came to the States with Tony Monero, And then I periodically ran into him either in Telluride or the New York Film Festival that supported much of his work. And I was always just taken how he was able to incorporate a political and social awareness about stories that were talking about that period of time in the Pinochet years from 73 to the 90s and how it affected his culture through, you know, individuals, you know, not not people that were all... wealthy or in political positions of power, but how it affected the whole society. And so, you know, what I loved about his filmmaking is each one of his films told a different story, but he found a different language to tell the story in. Um, and, And how did I say it? I said it. His films kind of portrayed, examined, and dissected the state of society in Chile during the 70s. But uh, even the films he did outside of Chile of, you know, Jackie and uh, Spencer was a a way of looking at the culture psychologically through the female-themed stories. And I I just did uh, his third part of the trilogy with Maria looking at Maria Mm Callas, you know. So it's it's really about um, a political satire that's Mm -hmm. using the tropes of the horror genre to show how devastating it was to the culture that the idea of a vampire, not the traditional romantic perception of a vampire film, but one that looks at how, Metaphorically and literally, our blood is taken politically, culturally, and socially in Chile, and by them complying and yielding and being seduced by fascism. So you know, it, it's it's a, a story that's not just pertaining to uh, Chile. And this is like what's happening to the world in the last 50 years. It's become more and more. Totalitarian and fascist.
1: Absolutely,
2: yeah. So societies like Chile were always colonized with the ideas of first world and third world, which created kind of racist racist ideas of control, and the film touches on that also. But but what better way to find a metaphor? Because I think films are the strongest when they deal with metaphor. Is is to use the Genre, you know, and I certainly looked at films like uh, Murnau's, mm. you know, films *Nosferatu* and yes. *Sunrise*, and then uh, *Vampire* by uh, Carl Dreyer.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the um the sort of title card shot in El Conde with, the, with that house and these really uh-huh. dark gray clouds and this silvery mist around it. It looked to me straight out of Vampire.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I didn't try to totally reference exactly, but mm-hmm. of course I looked at all those films and I, when I was taken by that period of filmmaking. They didn't have all the digital memes we do now, that they did everything in camera and how remarkable and sophisticated the filmmaking was then. So I just tried to implement that through, you know, we used a monochromatic camera. Yeah. It was made specially yeah. for the film. Aeroflex made this camera. And then by using a monochromatic camera and Pablo getting the a commitment from Netflix to use a monochromatic and not have to shoot in color and then transpose that in black and white. I could use black and white filters that I've had for years. And then we could all approach, you know, the wardrobe and the sets and everything, even the blood we changed to blue because we found it had more luminosity than just the red that turns out just black. That's fascinating. And then I went back to I had rehoused a set of lenses that were silent, the glass that was made in the uh in thirty, in the thirties that was used in black and white films like Magnificent mm-hmm. Ambers and Touch of Evil and uh, even later, uh, um, Gordon Willis used one of the lenses in The Godfather, mm. but they were the original Baltar B A L T A R S lenses that were used in black and white film. And then the last thing that I was able to do is I've created a uh, exposure tracking system that uses analog thinking in the digital world, and that way I could control the exposure, the way Ensel Adams did to set a look to the black and white, you know, uh, photographs that he used. And I adapted that system to a digital camera. Yeah. And that's why it has such wonderful grays yeah. and midtones.
1: Oh, the this exposure latitude system, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by this idea. Um, I'm wondering, could you explain to like the less camera tech savvy among us
2: yeah. <laughs> how it actually works? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not so difficult. It's basically in the digital world when digital cameras came out, the people that engineered that world, engineered those cameras, thought in scopes, and it's called IRE, uh, you know, they thought in Mm. technical, they didn't think in electronics, they thought in electronics, they didn't think in the photochemical world, but as cinematographers, we think in the chemical world, or at least I did, because I was brought up that way. So I wanted to have a system the way I what I used in the photochemical world, in the digital world. And because the digital world really didn't understand the photochemical world, how we talk to each other. We talk in stops. We don't talk in percentages of and numbers. Mm. And so I was able to translate. The primary thing that we use in the photochemical world is 18% gray. It's a gray card, and everything is set up to that for your exposure. Your light meters, the, the numbers on the lenses, the stops on your lenses, and even the way we communicate to people on the set. You know, we say, bring the window down a stop, bring the shadows down a stop. We talk and stop. But IRE doesn't take that in consideration. They have another way they talk that doesn't conform to the way we understand exposure. And so we've had to adapt to that. And it's not always the best way because every manufacturer has a different way of interpreting it. Not every (laughs) camera manufacturer interprets. False color or IRE—it's called the same way. Wow. So my idea was, how do we standardize something that I can shoot with any camera, mm-hmm. in, in with any monitor, and we all have the same language? And I did experiments, and Panasonic picked it up first, and then Small HD, a monitor company that people use on their cameras to view their image. Mm -hmm. incorporated in their software. And that software can be adapted to any camera. They know where 18% gray is in an Aeroflex camera, in a Sony camera, in a RED camera. So now we have a universal language. And basically that's what I've been fighting for the last 10 years, to have this incorporated in to be a new standard, the way our light meters used to be. Because basically your camera is your light meter. Mm-hmm. you know, but, but we don't have a way of interpreting that except we look at a monitor and say, oh, that looks good. Mm. Always what you see on the monitor isn't what you get. Yeah. You know, your monitor has to be set up perfectly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that's basically, I hope, explains it in a simplified way of what I did, you know. So now the monitor company, Small HD, has it as software, and I'm talking to all the major camera manufacturers that eventually they'll install it in their cameras. So then we'll uh-huh. all be able to talk the way we did, say, F4 is F4. wherever, Whatever light meter I use, whatever camera I use, if I talk to the lab and post, they all know what we're talking about. Wow.
1: That's fantastic.
2: <laughs> this is the first film that used it. Oh, wow. You know, I've had a number of cinematographers reach out to me and say that they're, they were so taken by the mid-range, the, the way the black and white looks yeah. in the mid-range, meaning you know, between the highlights and the shadows, the detail in the, high, in the mid-range and the reason that is is because i knew where i had detail without losing detail in the highlights and i knew where i had detail without losing the shadow and by compressing that i then gained mid range so i had this incredible depth to the image in the mid range and if if you shoot only for the highlights and you 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 Let's say you overexpose too far, mm-hmm. then it's, it's very hard to bring back the mid range because you're printing it down to to take away the highlights that are too bright. And if you go too far in the shadow area, and you open up, you have the same problem in a different way. So, if if you have to, your shadow area is too dark, and you have to print up. Then you're going to lose the mid range as as the subtlety of the mid range because you've had to open up the exposure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you follow that, you know.
1: Yeah, I do. It makes sense, and it's an incredible process, and it's incredible that it's taken this this long to be for you to develop it and put it into practice. Yeah.
2: I adapted something. It Mm. took this long because. Engineers in the digital world don't think in the analog world. Nobody thought right. to think what is it that we don't have in the digital world that they're using in the analog world? They just thought we'll come up with our own system. Well, that's great, but not everybody, you know, wants to use that. Plus, like I say, there's no standard. You know there's been a hundred years of of using yeah the photochemical world to understand exposure, yeah, so why throw that out the window anyway that that's my, <laughs> my, my, my thought. yeah i
1: I agree, and you know I know that you said that you've said in interviews that you were surprised that they were able to get this camera ready for you in time oh well that was another thing don't you know that
2: I uh, I reached out to Ari because mm-hmm. we wanted to use this it's called the LF the uh large format mm-hmm. camera they they actually have in the XT but wasn't um under the uh that Netflix you know uh requirement of 4K it was still a 2K camera and so and And they had a sixty five millimeter camera, the black and white sensor, but not in the uh l f the large format and um so they were they wanted to do this, but they were coming out with their own camera the uh, the alexa thirty five which would be a their new camera that's four k because that's their requirement of Many of the manufacturers Mm -hmm. like Netflix. So they jumped at the chance to do this for me, but it was really remarkable that they were able to do it within two months to have the camera ready for me to test. In fact, I had to do a lot of the testing for them because they didn't have the time to figure out the exposure with it.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, how did you manage to do all those tests so fast?
2: Well, I I just, the minute I got it, I started doing (laughs) tests with it and uh, checking, you know. And and, and to my uh, pleasure, to my surprise, it actually gained exposure because a lot of Mm. the sensors that go, the bare pattern to go to color now could be used for luminosity, could be used for the black and white. Exposure, so I was I was gladly surprised to see um, that the camera was actually faster than what it was rated. Fantastic! And then, like I say, using these older glass that was rehoused by Zero Optics, the original Baltars that were used for black and white, uh, you know, photography back in the '30s. Yeah. And then the LF and then using filters. I could go back once. He got the go with Netflix to actually shoot in black and white, not shoot in color and then transfer it to black and white, that I could actually shoot in black and white. Then everybody could work together, you know, in the wardrobe, in the sets, even in the color of the blood. The blood actually we ended up using is blue. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah, we found out that blue had more luminosity than red. Red is beautiful, but it's deep, deep black. And the blue had more of a luminosity and reflection with the light. Mm. So that's why we went with
1: blue. Yeah, there's this fantastic shot uh, in the film of the general drinking blood from a blender. (laughs) And it's in silhouette. And I believe I read that you guys didn't do much storyboarding for this, and you found most of the images on the day in camera. How much testing did you have to do to get that shot to be so stark?
2: Well, (laughs) the funny part of that is we were shooting in another part of the, that was actually in a hotel. and, Mm. And then they said, oh, we have this other shot today. And I go, really? What shot's that? (laughs) <laughs> and I had never seen that location. I swear to God. Oh no! Never, and we went in. And go, oh, great! And we can't show who it is because you know that's the right. door. The, the, the uh, you know, we have to fake that 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 the audience from the first shot doesn't know who who the the count that that is isn't the count. Yeah. So then I wow, how am I going to light this? You know, if any light I put on him. You're going to see who it is. Way to spring it on you. <laughs> yeah. So across the street was a, a big building. You know, uh, it was actually a, uh, I don't know there it was office building. I think it was an office building. So I had lights outside. So I go, hey, why don't we just hit the buildings with the light and I'll make them a silhouette. And that's what happened. Ah. I lit the building across the way, so he became this perfect silhouette, and I never had any light on him, but you see him as as this cutout image against the window, drinking the that was just by chance and wit at the moment in time. It's incredible. sometimes the best things happen when you when you, you don't prepare. <laughs> But <laughs> you got to come up with something, you yeah. know? Yeah,
1: it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, and thankfully, I assumed that by that point, you had already figured out that the blue blood looked better than red.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. By that, we had... We had yeah. But you know, not the whole image. I hadn't figured out that. Much. Right.
1: Yeah. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. You've worked on so many films over the years since the 1970s. But I assume as you learn and as times change and technology changes, you're always learning new things while on the job. Did you learn anything working on El Conde that surprised you?
2: Well, um, yeah, of course. I I hadn't shot black and white since uh, I'm not there. Mm. So, and that I've never shot anything in this gothic form of, you know, referencing. Films shot in the 30s and 40s, or even the 20s. So having all these different tools to replicate the ideas was was a, was a learning curve. And um, you know, it, it, look, there's no shot that's ever the same as the last one. Right. And so you're always challenged. I mean, that's what keeps my job interesting. Is that I'm always in different situations to create an image, and I don't speak Spanish, so <laughs> I was in my own vacuum there. You know, yeah, I hadn't worked with a crew that was wonderful, and and Pablo uh, wanted to and uh, operate, so I worked with him as an operator. It was just, you know, I had never worked with the crew, I had never worked with Pablo, I was working in a different country so all these things and to me i'm very affected by the people i work with and around and the, mm. the incredible thing about the chilean crew is they were so resourceful if they didn't have something they just made it you know <laughs> wow. special effects with a uh, smoke and they it was some of the best smoke i've ever worked with they they made those machines i had filters uh um, support or filter mm. trays made. I, everything was kind of like, you know, done like homemade. And that In a way, in, in the end, it worked out better. You know, even the end scene with the flying, with the yes. Karma, Carmina, you know, yeah. Karmacita flying. You know, the night footage is with blue screen. We we looked at the volume, but it was too expensive and mm. the size that we needed. So we went with blue screen. But that was a revelation to me that we could actually shoot those flying scenes with her that really give it a gravity. And we shot that for real. We did wa- had had her on wires. She did a lot of it herself. That mm. we did have a stunt double but she primarily wanted to do it herself she was studied ballet when she was younger mm. and uh we we had the grip holding a uh, uh the ronin it's a head of you know a remote head <laughs> we operated from the ground and they both flew in the air and it, it's so remarkable the feeling that you know that isn't digital, you know, that you just believe that the authenticity of the image, I think that's what I'm always striving for with the directors that you believe in what you're seeing, Yeah. you know, and I think more and more, that's the way people want to do things, you know, even in Oppenheimer, he's dictated that, you know, so, you know, people believe or want you to the audience to believe, even if it's an abstraction of reality that you want people to believe in what they're seeing. You know, you want to believe in the performance and you want to believe in the images that portray that performance. So that, and not that, I like to work that way. Yeah. It's beautiful. So she's flying with wires and then the operator is on the ground. And then they, there's another seat with the, he's on a different crane sometimes on the same crane arm, and they're moving in tandem with each other, and then we're operating the camera's movement Mm -hmm. right, left, up, down from the ground. And that's what gave it that, you know,
1: believability. It looks incredible, and it does look utmost believability in that scene. It's it's fantastic. Uh Uh For your work on this film, you've recently received your fourth ASC nomination, your third Oscar nomination.
2: Did I have four at the ASC?
1: Yeah, this is your fourth. Wait, wait, didn't This I... is the fourth one. Really? Yeah. What?
2: I didn't know that. What? What's the fourth
1: one? What? what... <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for ASC, it was Carol, uh, Far From Heaven, and Mildred Pierce. It's not for a theatrical release. Oh, oh, but you're
2: right. yeah are I totally <laughs> forgot that. All right, Mildred Pierce. Yeah, that those... was... I got it. Yeah. For television. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, all right.
1: So your fourth ASC nomination, third Oscar nomination, you know, having started working on films in the 70s, what does it mean to get that kind of recognition at this point?
2: <laughs> Listen, the, 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 the recognition that I get from my fellow cinematographers, a little... Emails I get from people I respect and and revere their own work. That that's the best, you know. Awards are awards, but for me, awards any one of the five of us are worthy of that award. So whatever happens, happens. That that isn't what's the most important thing for me. It's it, it's important that we all got recognized. You know, it's yeah not going to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I got a lifetime achievement at the ASC, which is really nice, and
0: mm-hmm. I,
2: I, Imago's recognized me. I, I The awards aren't so interesting. It, what's interesting is that every day you get to the set and you kind of feel like you've done something on the set that was different than what you did before and that, that it works. Doesn't always work. <laughs>
1: Not always, but no. I think the times when it doesn't work kind of makes it that much more
2: special, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah you know, the the main thing is that you just don't fall back to something that you've done numerous times. That you challenge mm-hmm. yourself to approach each, you know, story and image in a different way. You know, that mm-hmm. you find out what's unique to that story, to create a, a language, a visual language to tell the story. I always say it this way. You know, what makes a film different than a book, a play, uh, uh, a music, uh, a photograph even, is that, that we're finding a language in time and in space through the optics of a lens to tell the story and to create the emotions of that story. That's what really makes it unique. You know, and the, mm. for me, the visual language is, is the language of the film. Yeah. You know, that's what gives the emotion. Of course, the performances and the dialogue, but if you don't set it in the right emotional context, it's a nonverbal form of communication images in a, in, in a film. Well and I
1: think that is a fantastic place to end it. All right. Since we're we are out of time, but it also works out. <laughs> and thank you Perfect. so much for joining us.
2: All right. Take care. I look forward to seeing your article. How where is it gonna be? The website or what what, what are you uh, yeah, where it'll it'll the...
1: be posted on the website on nextbestpicture.com. All
2: right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks ever so much. And Chris,
1: thank you so much. It was fantastic talking with you. All right. bye
0: hey everyone thank you so much for listening to Dan Bear's interview with the cinematographer for El Conde Edward Lockman here on the next best picture podcast Ed Lockman is nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for El Conde and the film is now available to stream on Netflix